0: How do we face uncertain times? I mean, you look at the headlines today, watch the news, and we face all kinds of problems in this world that are much bigger than ourselves. There's the prospect of worldwide pandemics. Our nation and our allies are facing ever-growing threats from the enemies of freedom, from China and North Korea, from Russia and Iran, You look at the obvious problem of Islamic fascism growing. And the leaders of our own government seem to be becoming more fascist themselves. They're also uh, seem to be becoming more incompetent in their leadership of our country. And I I guess the best kind of fascist is an incompetent fascist. But um, we've got all kinds of problems in this world. It looks like this world is just falling apart at the seams. The temptation for us as believers is to look at all of this turmoil and to come to the conclusion, well, the return of Jesus must be within our lifetime or the return of Jesus must be within a few years because we can't imagine how much worse things would get. And, I've, uh, and I would tend to want to give in to that temptation to look at the world and see it as signs of an imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reality is Jesus Christ can return at any time. But I think the danger is to look at our own lives and look at our own world and to interpret scripture through that lens. In other words, to take the crises of the world and to embed that into our interpretation of Scripture. I don't think that's what Scripture would call us to do. Uh, some people see the, uh, the fulfillment of Scripture in every headline. Yeah, back in the 1980s when the AIDS disease became huge news, one person came into the Christian bookstore that I worked at, at Joshua's Christian store in Irving, Texas. And uh, we were talking about that, and it was big news, and they, they said that AIDS is, in the history of mankind, the 39th major disease to inflict upon humanity. Well, that sounds good to me, I guess. I don't know. I didn't count. But they said it's the 39th major disease. And since Jesus, when he was uh, uh, lashed, with the cat of nine tails before his death, um, 39 times. And since Scripture says by his stripes we are healed, well, now the, now the death of Jesus covers all 39 major diseases, therefore he's coming back soon. I thought, that's quite a stretch. That's a lot of things to sort of piece together and to uh, put all of your faith in, put all those eggs in one basket. Uh, you know, I repeatedly heard back in the 1980s and before that the Soviet Union, which had a a bear as its unofficial mascot, would one day invade modern day Israel as a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And it it sounded plausible, sounded good. Uh, Sounded like they are the Army of the North until the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991. And I guess now Russia is that army that's, that comes from the north. I don't know. I really don't know. I think the danger is to look at worldwide events, look at headlines, and a lot of preachers make a lot of money, on, especially on TV, uh, connecting the headlines of the day and saying, well, this fulfills this passage in Isaiah or Ezekiel or wherever else. And I think we need to be more careful with our interpretation of Scripture. It's easy to be lazy with Scripture. You know, just to read the Bible and interpret it, however wild your imagination takes you. Uh, But even if you try to be honest with the text and let the text speak for itself, when the Bible and the nightly news talk about wars and earthquakes and famines and things like that, you take notice. And so when I first started uh, studying biblical passages about the end times, eschatology is the theological term, You know, I assumed that everything that I read about the future was still future to me. And um, what we'll discover today is that much of what Jesus prophesied about in Mark chapter 13 and the parallel passage of uh, Matthew chapter 24, much of what he prophesied about was fulfilled by the time the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And so here's what I'd ask you to do today. I'd ask you to put aside all of your biblical preconceptions of what the end times really means. I want you to resist the temptation to read your ideas into Scripture. And I would ask you to allow Jesus to speak for himself. Now here's the background of Mark chapter 13. The larger contextual issues of the day. Mark chapter 10 verse 47 right before Jesus goes into the uh, city of Jerusalem, he heals one last guy, blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus calls Jesus something that no one else had ever called him. Blind Bartimaeus cried out to him repeatedly, saying, son of David. Blind Bartimaeus was the first one to really see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament king. King David. He was the one who was going to fulfill the prophecy. So he was the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, and the savior of Israel. Next step, enter Jerusalem. That's what we find in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Jesus fulfills scripture by entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, and, which is how the king of Israel would enter. And what does he do after he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey? He immediately makes his way to the temple. And he sees that the temple has become a place of profit rather than a place of prayer. This upsets him. The next day, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25, Jesus comes back into the temple and he clears it out. And by the way, he also curses a fig tree in that story, which is a sign to the leaders of Israel, to the leaders of the temple, that they had been cursed by God because of their disobedience. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 34. Repeatedly, the leaders of the temple keep coming to Jesus, keep coming to Jesus, asking him questions, trying to trap him, trying to trick him, trying to get him to stumble, trying to get the people to turn against him. And Jesus rebukes all of their questioning tactics. Then in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus finally goes on the offensive. And he asked the temple leaders, why King David called the Messiah Lord if the Messiah would be David's son? David shouldn't call his son, his descendant, Lord. Why does he? And the obvious answer is that the Messiah has to be uh, not only a descendant of David, but also God himself. And Jesus teaches them that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words... This temple that you guys trust in, this temple that you guys run, is going to be replaced by a new temple, a temple of God's people. And He, Jesus, the Lord Himself, is the chief cornerstone of that temple. The next few verses, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, Jesus condemns the leaders of the temple because they're very arrogant, they're hypocritical, they go so far as to rob widows of their money. And then Jesus observes a widow woman walking into the temple, putting in two cents, everything she has to live on. And he says, this woman, she is what true godliness is like, not them, not the leaders of the temple. Ever since Jesus walked into Jerusalem, he had one encounter after the other, With the leaders of the temple. With all that conflict that Jesus had with those leaders of the temple, one of the disciples came up to Jesus in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, where we are today. And he said, wow, look at that temple. One of these guys really didn't get it. That Jesus and the temple were at odds. With one another and so in mark chapter 13 verse 1 we read as he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and jesus goes on to tell him that it's all going to be destroyed you see for you and me here's a lesson that we need to learn the only accomplishments that will remain are those that serve god's purposes if you're involved in things in your life, it may not be as grandiose as the Herod's temple, which took 46 years to build. It may be something else that's going on in your life, something that you're trying to achieve, something that you're trying to do, and you're really putting your all into it. Listen, if you're not doing it for God's glory, if you're not doing it for God's purposes, it's going to burn someday. It's going to burn. It's going to come crumbling down. It won't last the test of time. The only accomplishments in your life that will ever remain the only accomplishments as a church that we do that will ever truly remain, the only accomplishments in God's kingdom that will ever remain are those that are done for God's purposes. That temple itself, it took over four decades to build. Jesus said to the man in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That temple area was the greatest archaeological or architectural achievement of its day. There were some stones that we found that uh, weigh 160,000 pounds. But because some of Israel's leaders allowed it to become a marketplace instead of a holy place, God was going to destroy it. It was not serving the purpose that God intended for it to serve. And that's exactly what happened. In AD, in AD uh, 70, Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem with 70,000 troops after Jews had rebelled against Rome. The Roman army completely decimated the temple, destroyed it, and it does not stand to this day. The only part that remains is what we call the Wailing Wall, and even that had been rebuilt since that time you see if something doesn't glorify God he's gonna remove it he will remove it it reminds me of what we learn from Paul with regard to the bema seat of Christ for Jesus Christ will judge us as believers not not judge us in the sense of sending us to hell but he'll judge us with a purifying judgment sending his gaze upon us into the very depths of our soul and burning out if you will All of the dross, all of the worthlessness, all of the things that we do for ourselves, all of those accomplishments that we might want to accomplish, and the only things that will remain are those things that are gold and silver, those things that are precious stones, those things that are truly of God and done for His glory according to His purposes. After Jesus says, all of this is going to be destroyed, look what happens in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished? Now Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and he sits down. I want to show you an image of what he saw. Taken from the Mount of Olives, this is what, would have been what he saw. This is an actual uh, model representation that exists today. But this image would have been, if you ever sit on the Mount of Olives, and you can go there today, there's a Seven Arches Hotel right on the top of the Mount of Olives. And you can look into the old city of Jerusalem. Of course, you'll see the Golden Dome, that, that, that Muslim area there that sits on that uh, great landmark But Jesus would have seen this. A huge portion of the old city of Jerusalem taken up by this temple. He went to the Mount of Olives and he sat down. And that's when Peter and James and John and Andrew came to him. And they said again in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus is going to give them a very long answer. And in this answer, we need to understand two very important facts. Number one, Jesus believed that the last days, the end times, began with him. Began with him. Read Acts chapter 2. You can see the fulfillment of the prophecy that we have in Joel. Peter himself said that we're in the last days, if you read that. Jesus knew that the last days started with him. Why? Because he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Jesus, what did he preach? He preached the kingdom of God is here. What did John the Baptist before him preach? The kingdom of God is coming. It's soon. It's right here. It's, in your, it's almost right here. And Jesus said, it's in your midst now. So the kingdom of God has come. The last days have begun. That means that we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. It means that we have been living in a time that has been... That the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in our very midst. And that's why we're saved, because we experience the kingdom of God. The second thing that we note about Jesus' answer is that the prophecies that he gives in Mark chapter 13, all of them were still future to Jesus and the disciples. But a majority of what Jesus has to say, in fact, almost everything Jesus has to say, in the passage that we'll study today. They were still future to Jesus and the disciples in AD 33. But they were were fulfilled in that generation. Before AD 70. Before the temple was destroyed. And I'll show you why. And I'll show you why we know this to be true. Look in Mark chapter 13 verse 24. In verse 24. Jesus spends a long time previously talking about all these things that are about to occur. And then in Mark chapter 13, verse 24, he makes a contrast. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, then the sun and the moon will not give their light. There's going to be signs in heaven. But these are going to be a bunch of signs here on the earth. And these things will occur in the disciples' lifetime." So, what does Jesus want his disciples then to learn? And what does he want us to learn? Number one, he wants us to be watchful and diligent as we follow him. Be watchful and diligent. Jesus was asked by the disciples in verse 4, what is the sign, singular, the one sign that will signal The end. Jesus responds by giving several signs that indicate that the end is not yet. He doesn't answer their question directly. They ask for the one sign that will signal the end. He responds by giving them several signs that the end is not yet. I'll show you. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. In the first century A.D. after Jesus came, up until the destruction of the temple, there were numerous fake messiahs that came along and said, I'm the Christ. I'm the messiah. In fact, by history, we know of at least six. Six different men that led many thousands of people into believing that they were the Messiah. False Messiahs came along saying, I am the Messiah. This all happened before the temple's destruction. And Jesus says, this is not the end. Verse 7, in the first part of verse 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. You see, the first time I ever studied this and first time I ever was taught this, I kept thinking, wow, well, false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. These are the things that I've got to be looking for. And they're everywhere. What I didn't, under, I didn't read it carefully Jesus said, these are signs that it's not yet. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Jesus said in verse 7, This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What wars and rumors of wars were there? In the first century, there was a revolt in Europe against Rome. The Jews heard about it. They heard about these rumors. The Jews in Jerusalem. That's when they decided We're going to rebel against Rome too. Rome is weak. We're going to take back Jerusalem. We're going to take back our temple. We're going to take back our homeland. And so they began to revolt. They began to rebel against Jerusalem. Jesus said, this is not the end. Verse 8 continues. There will be earthquakes in various places. By the way, ancient historians tell us of at least seven different earthquakes that occurred during that time and they didn't have all the modern technology we'd have it was earthquakes large enough that you could feel there'll be earthquakes in various places there'll be famines we know of a, a huge famine that happened in Jerusalem in, in uh, AD 50 and Jesus again says these are but the beginnings of birth pangs in other words The baby hadn't arrived yet. This is just the beginning. These these things do not indicate the end. But they're coming. And I need you to be aware. Jesus gives his disciples a number of signs. And all of these indicate that it's not yet time. Secondly, Jesus wants us not to worry about what we can't control but to be ready when we're persecuted. Do you imagine that when Jesus was telling his four disciples here these things, that they began to get worried? Absolutely. But he says, essentially in the next section, don't worry about these things that you can't control, but be ready, because it's coming. Verse 9, Jesus said, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, How many modern Christians are beaten in synagogues today? Not a whole lot. How many were beaten in synagogues in the first century? An awful lot. You will be taken before councils, beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Jesus says they're going to drag you before the the different authorities. The disciples faced all these things. Paul himself received 39 lashes on numerous occasions. All of this happened before the temple's destruction in A.D. 70. And the disciples would be brought before kings, and they would have to give a testimony in a hostile environment, in an unbelieving environment, give a testimony of their faith. And Jesus says in verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must be preached in all the world. You might say, well, that hasn't happened yet. And I, I I would agree. There are places of the world... People groups, about 2,000 people groups that we know of that don't have a viable witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you look at how the disciples understood the nations, how they understood the world, listen to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He said, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Paul's saying the gospel is going out to the whole world. Romans chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. We all know verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I ask, have they not heard? You and know, I would say no. Paul says, yes. Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. According to Paul, he was very involved in the fulfillment of Jesus' words, taking the gospel to all the known world, all throughout Italy, and he ultimately made it all the way to Spain. That was his intention as we read Romans. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus tells them again not to worry about the things they can't control, but to be ready for persecution. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, What you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak. But the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child. Families will turn against families. Because of me Jesus says. And a father will deliver over his child. And children will rise against parents. And have them put to death. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of our faith in him. Because we share Christ. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Next major thing Jesus wants us to understand. He wants us to know that he loves us so much, he cares about us so much, that he tells us these warnings beforehand. He told his followers ahead of time to be ready. Verse 14, But when you see The abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What is that? What's the abomination of desolation? Standing where he ought not to be. Um, Abomination means desecration. Desolation means abandonment. And so, and when it talks about him standing where he ought not to be, it's talking about a person. This means that someone causes the temple to be desecrated and abandoned. Now, I'd ask you, what temple is Jesus talking about? If we're going to be lazy and just read this verse of Scripture without understanding any context, we might say, oh, that's the coming temple. That's the third temple, the temple of it's talked about in Ezekiel. But I'd submit to you that if we're understanding the context of what just went on in Jesus' life for the past week, battle after battle after battle after battle that he had with the temple leaders, and how he just gave a prophecy that this temple's going to be destroyed, that when Jesus talks about the temple being desecrated, the abomination of desolation, He's talking about the same temple. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Someone did come into the temple, did desecrate it, did abandon it. In November of the year 67 AD, all the way through the spring of 68 AD, zealots overtook the temple. They allowed criminals to come into the entire temple area. They allowed criminals even to walk into the Holy of Holies. The zealots and these criminal elements, they got drunk in the temple. They made it their fortress. They even murdered people in the temple. They even murdered the high priest. And as a joke, they installed an illegitimate high priest in his place. You'll love his name. The guy's name was Fanny. Isn't that great? P-H-A-N-N-I. They installed an illegitimate high priest right there. They desecrated what Jesus wanted to be, a holy place. Maybe that's why Mark adds that little parenthesis in verse 14, where he says, let the reader understand. You know, Jesus didn't say that. Mark, he put that in there. When you see the, de- the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, Mark adds, let the reader understand. It, I believe it's Mark's way of saying, Take note of what Jesus is saying. You already know what this refers to. And it obviously refers to something that had taken place at a time that Mark's readers in Rome would have understood. Jesus is saying, when these things happen, if you're in Judea, run run like the wind. Why would he say Judea? Why wouldn't he say Levellander? Why wouldn't he say all over the world? He said Judea because this is a very specific prophecy and when you see these things happen, these signs none of which are the end but they are signs that have to happen then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains verse 15 Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. Jesus says, just run for your life. Verse 17. And the last for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why? They're vulnerable. They're immobile. They've got to care for their kids woe to them jesus says verse 18 pray that it may not happen in winter why obviously it's colder in winter but also something unique to that area is that's the rain season if it happens in river in winter that's when the streams and the rivers swell and it's hard to make your way across when you're running for your life pray that it doesn't happen in winter Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation that it has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. What happened? Jewish believers in that area understood the prophecy that Jesus was giving them. And when they saw the abomination of desolation, when they heard the wars and rumors of wars, of Jews taking over a Roman citadel or Roman area there in uh, Jerusalem and making that temple area a fortress, they understood this is what Jesus is talking about. And what did the believers do right before A.D. 70? They ran. They hid in the hills. They took off. Because the Romans with their 70,000 troops were coming. And they were going to not show any mercy to that rebellious area. Verse 21, If then anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Next week, we'll begin to look at those things that will happen after the fulfillment of that terrible time in Jerusalem because that's when Jesus says, in those days, after that tribulation, then, then you'll see signs in heaven. There's coming a day that's still future. There's coming a day in which we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to return. He's going to return in His perfect timing. What He calls us to do today is not to look at every scripture and try to make it a modern-day fulfillment. He calls us to simply be watchful, to be diligent, to be faithful in all things, To be ready, if we're persecuted, to stand for our faith, and to never, ever be misled, believing this prophet or that teacher or this other person that comes along. Jesus wants us to be faithful to him.